0: welcome to the loop ventures neurotech podcast i'm doug clinton and i am joined today by two people one is avery Beddos, our neurotech specialist say hello avery
1: hey everyone
0: and the other is brian pepin he's the founder and ceo of rune labs one of our most recent investments and so brian it is great to have you on
1: yeah thanks glad to be here doug
0: and so brian let's start just with the basics if you could just give us a little bit about your personal background and kind of how you became interested in the neurotech space and also tell us about what rune labs does
1: so you know i had been trained as an electrical engineer at University of Washington and then Berkeley, and started a few companies, kind of wireless sensor networks and consumer electronics, and sort of spun those out. I kind of let my co founders run them and I uh, was thinking about what to do. And this is maybe, I guess, 2012, and decided I was going to take a chance and really dive into neurotech deep at Berkeley with a few guys there Michelle Maharvas and Jose Carmena. Who so had been working on cool brain machine interface stuff. And a lot of that stuff kind of led into these big DARPA programs like Subnets later. But at the time, it was a mix of building really interesting new hardware software systems for neuroscience experiments. And so decided to kind of try and finish up my PhD doing that. Fell in absolute love with the space and the way neuroscience was trying to answer all these really hard problems about not only disease, but the human condition and how the promise of better computing and better imaging, all this stuff was sort of accelerating things and was kind of planning to make my career in that, but got sidetracked because I ended up getting sort of on the tail end of my PhD work, a job offer to join this secret project at Google from a few guys I had worked with previously at Berkeley. And that turned out to be the very beginnings of the smart contact lens program inside Google X. So it was maybe the 11th or 12th person to join that team. And that sort of spiraled into a few other projects. And then eventually Conrad came in and brought everything together as Google Life Sciences and spun out into Verily. So ended up being that kind of four and a half year journey from this tiny project to this 700 person behemoth at Verily and learning a lot along the way about not only the technology side, but doing product and strategic BD and healthcare. I spent a lot of my time there working on one project in particular which was called Galvani, and it was a big joint venture that we did with GlaxoSmithKline to basically develop neuromodulation approaches to treating diseases which hadn't traditionally been treated by neuromodulation, starting out with a lot of work in autoimmune disease like RA and things like that. So I got to help identify and do that deal and also build the engineering team for that project. And that really got me back deep into neuromodulation and got me thinking about, again, all the opportunities and possibilities for it. And then towards the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, I'd been at Verily for a while. They were starting to focus on some other types of products more in the hospital and payer space. And I was thinking, well, maybe I really want to get deep back into neuroscience and neuromodulation and neurotech. And so eventually I left Verily and decided to start this company, Rune Labs, which is really focused on furthering and helping neuromodulation reach its full potential for delivering really amazing therapies to patients with brain diseases like Parkinson's and major depressive disorder and Alzheimer's and developing new therapies for these indications faster. And our approach to that is basically do that through better software and data availability. So really provide software interfaces to patients, clinicians, and researchers that are really optimized for neuromodulation and bringing in data from all these sources and aggregating it and then leveraging that data to not only make the therapy delivery better, but enable new insights that can be used to uh, develop new important therapies.
0: It's a great journey that ties together a lot of the pieces of what you're building at Rune. And Brian, maybe before we dig in a little more on Rune, why don't we zoom out first and talk, a little bit more broadly about the neuromodulation industry. And it's so exciting that you really wanted to build Rune to support it. What do you see in terms of the opportunities there?
1: One way that I look at it is in terms of just unmet need for brain diseases. And so, you know, if you look at, let's say, oncology and cancer, there's this metric of economic burden. You know, if the United States has a certain level of economic burden from cancer, and it's in that case, maybe it's around 160 billion. And about half of that actually is spent on therapeutics. And so that's kind of a ratio. Economic burden is about twice what's spent on therapeutics. And in like rheumatoid arthritis, you have an economic burden of 40, 50 billion. About a quarter of that is spent on therapeutics. And if you compare that to brain diseases, so Parkinson's, 50 billion economic burden, but only about 3 billion or 4 billion is spent on therapeutics. You have depression, depression, $200 billion academic burden, but only maybe $10 billion is spent on therapeutics. Alzheimer's and dementia is like a $300 billion economic burden, something like $3 billion is spent on therapeutics. And so you have these cases where there's just a massive gap between all the pain people are experiencing and what basically drugs can do at this point. Because when I say therapeutics, most of that market right now is drugs. And so it strikes me that if new therapies can come along to take advantage of different paradigms... There's just a lot of demand. There's a huge market, pent-up demand, and a lot of good that you can do. So that's kind of number one. And then for me, thinking about why neuromodulation instead of drugs and why neuromodulation can be sort of disruptive of the standard of care is sort of rooted in this idea that brain diseases are different than other things that we've been able to treat with drugs in the past. And there's a couple of reasons why. Part of it is they tend to be pretty unique to the human physiology. There aren't really good animal models for depression or Parkinson's or dementia that model all of the complexity of what goes on in the human brain. And so you have this case where drugs go through animal testing for safety, but you really still don't know the efficacy until they go to humans. And then you have this really abysmal ratio of success in drugs going into human trials because you're kind of flying in blind to a certain respect. And you compare that to something like neuromodulation where you have devices, implantable and non-implantable, that Once you can show some basic safety characteristics of the device, you get a lot of actually room to kind of try out different sorts of waveforms and algorithms and input-output relationships in humans. And you can try that out, try different ones even in the context of one clinical study and adapt the therapy over time. And so getting back to the fact that we just don't really know enough from animal studies that see how therapies are working in humans means that we have to be able to experiment to a certain extent in humans and try new things and neuromodulation is just a much safer and more efficient way to do that i think it's going to lead to more therapies being discovered faster in that realm the other side of it is that these diseases are much more time varying even sort of hour to hour but certainly along a circadian cycle and month to month parkinson's and depression and alzheimer's they evolve and they present differently and so you ideally want a therapy which can be really adaptive to patient needs. And it's hard for drugs to do that because they have such long residency times and their uptake can be dependent on diet and all kinds of other environmental factors. And so it can be really hard to control the dose there. Whereas neuromodulation, the dose can be delivered very precisely at very precise moments in time. The dose is just electrons basically. And you have these new devices which can sort of sense relevant physiological signals, which tell you a lot about that current state of the brain, and then you can obviously use that information to optimize dose as well. And So you have these characteristics of neuromodulation, which are really different than pharma, the fact that you can try different things in humans, the fact that you can evolve a therapy really quickly over time, which I think just make it much better suited to these specific types of disorders.
0: And across... Depression, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, I mean, these things that probably, if you think about it, affect every family in the United States, if not the world, touches every family somehow. Where are we seeing neuromodulation have the most impact today? Where is the most advancement?
1: The first place that neuromodulation has had a big impact is Parkinson's. And a big reason for that, there's some historical reasons we actually knew a lot about How neuromodulation might affect Parkinson's from decades of lesioning and actual neurosurgical techniques to remove parts of the brain and how that was affecting different aspects of the disease. But also the symptoms that neuromodulation is treating in Parkinson's are movement symptoms, which as a neurologist, you can sort of visually see. So as you're sort of evolving a program, a neuromodulation program, trying to find the optimal setting and parameters for a given patient, you can actually visually see in the clinic how they're responding and tune appropriately. And that's actually a really big, important aspect of why that particular therapy in the context of DBS has been a success where you've seen clinical trials in depression and dementia and Alzheimer's since the early 2000s. They haven't yet translated to commercial, although maybe we'll get into this. I think that's changing as you start to have sense neural signals that are available that can actually drive some of that. Of course, the other big neuromodulation market is spinal cord stimulation for chronic pain which again, it is based on other observations that people had made about lesioning and how certain injuries were affecting pain from the lower limbs and back. And so you can put a stimulator in somebody's spinal cord and it sort of seems to be interrupting these pain signals. But oddly enough, less is sort of known about how exactly that works. Pain is still a rather mysterious thing, hard to quantify and things like that, even maybe compared to some other psychiatric disorders.
0: It makes sense. Maybe as a follow-up, as we think about where neuromodulation the industry is today obviously these treatments are invasive treatments how much of a bottleneck or headwind in the near term do you think the invasiveness of these treatments are even though we know that they're very effective
1: there's a clear market of people if treatments are available they don't really have any other option farm or anything else And they're very likely to get an implant. And it's it's not everybody with Alzheimer's. It's certainly not everybody with depression, but it's a selection of five or 10% of the worst patients who have the most severe symptoms, the hardest to treat conditions, and whose quality of life is extremely poor in the absence of having viable therapies who would, who will kind of go in for implants. And certainly over the last five years, the surgical process itself has improved a lot. So the time has come down by about 50%. You're able to do these surgeries completely image guided now. It actually, used to be the case when DBS started that patients had to be awake during their surgery in order to accurately locate the implant, which as you can imagine maybe limited the patient population a little bit for people who were willing to do that, but you'd be asleep now image guided, fewer rates of misplacement, things like that. And so all it's getting better. The devices are getting smaller, recovery times are faster, and so all that's definitely headed in the right direction. So there's that base population of people who just have no good options right now and whose surgery will be, would be life-saving, if not life-altering at least. Then there's a whole evolving suite of neurotechnologies, which fundamentally are trying to do the same thing as something like deep brain stimulation. You're trying to affect precise temporal and spatial input-output of information out of the brain that are not less invasive. And so you have things like transcranial magnetic stimulations, so your brain sways and, and neurostars, on the stimulation side, and you have really interesting things like Mary Lou Jepsen's open water project with the helmet-mounted MRI imaging where you can say, oh, wow, and this might actually open up a whole new suite of time series neural data to the world that wasn't there before. So I think, yeah, a lot of problems in the near term from implants, but yeah, going forward, I think there's applications of the way these therapies are delivered to a much wider population.
0: Totally agree. It's, yeah, it's one of the things that I think Avery and I are very much excited about is the industry of all the minimization of the invasiveness to maybe even you know non-invasive methods. Let me shift gears a little bit into a different line of questioning, and that is more on how. Researchers and device companies are leveraging neuromodulation today, and specifically, as researchers are digging into methods to leverage neuromodulation, device companies are thinking about how to build products around those methods. What are the problems that they are facing as they're building on this technology?
1: It's a good question. I think one of the major issues, which is certainly slowing things down, is Something that Rune is trying to address, which is this kind of siloed nature of data. Data can be siloed even on the level of a single patient visit, much less comparing things patient to patient or site to site. And it can be very hard if you're looking at data from feasibility trials and you're looking at data from single patient visits or a few patients at a time to draw conclusions about what we should take to a pivotal trial or what we should modify in order to make the therapy work better for more people, or how is this going to perform in a larger population? And so a big part of what we're doing is trying to standardize the software interfaces across these larger populations and standardize sort of the way the data is coming in and being labeled, at least within a single indication, so that you can start to look across all the patients and sort of all the data you're collecting around Parkinson's compare the research work to stuff that's happening commercially and really make better decisions aided by, at some point, aided by deep learning and machine learning mechanisms about is the therapy working? How should it be changed in order to make it work better? What's the sensitivity specificity going to be like in a larger population? How do you select the right population for a study? All that good stuff. And so that's kind of a big barrier right now, which we're trying to help out with. The field has changed quite a bit in the last five years partially due to Medtronic which has been the original dominant group in the field losing a lot of its exclusivity on hardware due to some of the original patents expiring and so for the first time ever in the last couple of years now you have some pretty robust competition in the space from Boston Scientific and Abbott and NeuroPace, kind of all, all four of them and so you actually have this interesting dynamic now where these companies are competing for researchers in a certain extent, whereas before everybody kind of had to use Medtronic. Now people can try to use the device, which is sort of best to in their research. And then there is sort of a dynamic in the field. I'm not sure how helpful this is, but it is certainly the dynamic where the companies have to support the research because they're putting one of their devices in a person and that device is going to be in there for a length of time. And there's liability associated with that. There's cost of ongoing support and things like that. And so the companies tend to request or or demand some fairly aggressive rights to IP that's developed at an early stage in order for them to give out that support. In some cases, that seems to not be very problematic where you have stuff that's maybe supported by the NIH and researchers are mostly interested in publishing and there's pretty well aligned incentives there. But Certainly, it may be discouraging some more entrepreneurial stuff in the space, like what you see, for example, in biotech startups and things like that, because you're sort of having to give away the farm very early on. And that's an interesting dynamic. And I think it will evolve and we're sort of following. Ryan, one question I have for you is how does the desire for closed loop technologies work its way into the competition and also into what hopefully is an inflection in these therapies? It's a good question. I mean, I was just at this DBS think tank thing that Mike Oaken put on down at University of Florida, and and the general consensus there seemed to be that the real initial application of sensing and closed loop was going to be in in sort of automated programming and auto-tuning. So right now, it's very time-consuming for both the neurologist and the patient side once you get this implant to kind of program all the optimal settings in. The kind of hope is that by leveraging endogenous signals from the brain, you can do a lot of that somewhat automatically or semi-automatically and result in better overall patient outcomes and reaching those outcomes faster. And so I think that's the first thing we're going to see. And I think we're going to see that relatively soon, but within the next, let's say one to three years, that should become pretty much standard of care. And then the really exciting thing is for us, how beyond that closed loop is actually going to be enabling the new therapies. And especially in cases like depression and Alzheimer's, if you look at the studies that have been happening and you know, supported by DARPA and the NIH over the last five years. And you can see that the open loop, just kind of straight pacemaker-like approaches are not working as well for these conditions as they have for something like Parkinson's. And you know, if you're stimulating things to try and change memory and focus or movement or sort of reward and tension kind of circuits, you have to be able to do that in a sort of naturalistic Adaptive way that is more kind of speaking the language of the brain. In in those cases, you know, the case of Parkinson's closed loop adaptive is certainly going to make the therapies better, and I think it's going to make the therapies work better for more people. But in the case of depression and Alzheimer's, those algorithms are going to be, I think, fundamental to making those indications scalable and really have enough effect size to be a marketable product. And so. In that case, the therapy and the IP around the therapy is these closed-loop algorithms, and those are going to be essential for having something that's going to work for people and something that you can put out there under the market.
0: And Brian, when you were talking about some of the companies in the space, Medtronic, Boston Scientific earlier, I'm curious what you've learned their sort of philosophy is on software development. Like We know they're so good at developing this hardware, but building... Closed-loop systems from a software perspective is obviously more complex, as you noted, than open-loop stuff. So how are they thinking about the software component of their devices becoming more important and how does Rune play into that?
1: I think they all sort of think about it in different ways. You know, they're culturally coming from a very different background when it comes to software development. They started out in hardware, their initial software teams were firmware teams, They've started to branch out into more application-type software, stuff that can you know run on a tablet, stuff that maybe is starting to get it into connected data world. But uh, they've also taken a lot of hits in software as well. I mean, there's a lot of sort of bad news and press that can get out there, where somebody hacks into a pacemaker, or somebody shows they can hack into a closed-loop insulin pump, and and all of a sudden the software starts to feel like a liability, and there's a lot of you know risk associated with it, and so. They're culturally coming from a background of okay, we're going to build this software, we're going to build it in a very high quality environment, but we're not going to take a lot of risk with it developing it, maybe something brand new. And I think where I've seen a lot of these companies kind of balance that out is in partnerships, and in some cases acquisitions, but a lot of partnerships recently around pairing these you know older guard med tech companies with newer software, data, AI focused companies to, to do some really interesting things and. In Medtronic's case, they've had a relatively long-running partnership with a company called Gluco around diabetes. they by diabetes portfolio. They just announced a partnership with a company called Viz.ai around new software-based workflows for stroke. And so there seems to be this interesting dynamic where I think they're aware that business models are changing, that workflows are changing, that technology is going to have a massive impact on pretty much every aspect of their business, but they're willing to partner in this area where, you know, maybe they haven't developed as strong of a core competency and open up a little bit in a way that, you know, allows people to, on the outside, experiment around, figure out what works, and then partner with Medtronic in a way that ties it in with the healthcare business.
0: Absolutely. I think there's great opportunities for Rune to kind of pull some of these pieces together, make the data, as you talked about, sort of more usable. And that brings me to my last question, Brian, which is, as you think about the opportunities in building the neuromodulation space, helping accelerate development in the space, could you tell us about just your vision longer term for RUNE over the next five to 10 years?
1: You know, we see both in neuromodulation and beyond for these brain disorders, the therapy is really essentially becoming software, right? So you have... A piece of code that's personalized to you that is telling your implant and your phone and maybe other things sort of what inputs and outputs should be happening at any given time to sort of optimize your indication, optimize your care to your specifications. And as we get closer and closer to that, I think there's going to be more and more room for a company like Rune to be sort of essential to development and delivery of these therapies. And for you know us to kind of even evolve sort of different models of how these therapies can be delivered. And I think we're coming from a world that's sort of based on pacemakers and having almost like an appliance model where you're selling a piece of hardware that's going to run on a warranty for a fixed amount of time and moving to a new world where, yes, there is underlying hardware, but most of the value of the therapy is in this code, which can be updated continuously. It can get better over time. It's a characteristic of software that tends to get better over time as more data comes into play. And we just want to be right at the center of developing and delivering new therapies for brain disease with those models and help as many patients as possible benefit from what we think is going to be a real important revolution in healthcare.
0: it's Excellent. It's a space that we're obviously super excited about. And we're honored to be investors in RUNE and to work with you in RUNE. And we're also honored to have you on our podcast. So Brian, thank you for the time and we'll talk to you soon.
1: It was my pleasure and super glad to have you guys on board as well.